Oh, hey, what's up? You're tuned into From the Ground Up, the podcast where culinary entrepreneurs share their stories. I'm your host, Danielle Berg. On this episode of From the Ground Up, I'm speaking with Rob Ruba. In 2016, he opened Restaurant Hazel in D.C., and then in 2017, he left Hazel to focus his efforts on the sustainability of restaurants, which led to the development of Oyster Oyster in D.C. When the pandemic hit and opening Oyster Oyster needed to be paused, Rob shifted by starting Scrappy's Bagel Bar and became a co-founder of Bakers Against Racism. So hi, Rob. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. I know you're really busy. Yeah, hello. Thank you for having me. Did I say your name right this time? Yes, <laughs> you got okay, it. Okay, good. good. <laughs> I said I I mispronounced it before, but we got it down. Don't worry, guys. Yes. <laughs> so, are you based in DC right now? Yes, I'm based in DC. That's where I'm operating out of right now. It's crazy times. I know. I just mentioned that you had to pause the opening of. Oyster Oyster, which is the new restaurant concept you developed with a team. When was that restaurant supposed to open? We were slated for probably a week before like COVID uh, shutdown started in DC. We were just getting ready to finalize our teams and invite them into the kitchen to start working with us. And we were just right there. We had our health inspection scheduled and basically DC went into like a shutdown with essential businesses only and we figured it wasn't the right time to open let alone bring on a team into such uncertain times so we kind of took a little pause then what shitty timing (laughs) yeah it was pretty pretty bad so (laughs) what were you working on after that happened so that happened and my my business partner max kohler has another restaurant in dc called the stadio and um he limited his team and they were taking two days off a week just to keep their their bubble for their restaurant to do takeout and i felt like i had to do something still and i wanted that restaurant to still have seven days so my wife and i kind of brainstormed this idea to open scrappy's bagels which is a like a bagel pop-up where we do bagels bagel sandwiches bialis um it's kind of both of us are from southern new jersey we grew up eating bagels our whole lives uh it just we've dabbled with it at home so we thought it'd be a fun thing to do and it's an interesting concept that took off in the neighborhood and we've been supplying the neighborhood on saturdays and sundays with fresh baked bagels sounds delicious do you have sourdough bagels i know that's the new craze right now no no sourdough no Uh, I, I think that sourdough causes uncertainty, and we've already had enough of that. So that's not something I wanted to play around with for the masses. A hundred percent. So before you were supposed to open the new restaurant, where were you working? Yeah. So when I moved to DC, I locked up with a restaurant group called Neighborhood Restaurant Group, and um, they eventually working with them for a few years. We decided to open a restaurant together a concept called Hazel. We opened that in 2016, kind of like modern American restaurant, share plates, all that, all that fun stuff. 
and uh you know won a good amount of accolades and was well well received and then in late 2017 early 2018 i decided i was probably time for me to move on to oyster oyster it's exciting how did you get started in the restaurant industry were you working in restaurants from a young age or is that something you discovered you know during college or after college yeah so i was in um went to art school originally for graphic design in Philadelphia. Just a young kid, didn't really have the right discipline for school. So I left that and then spent a year kind of just relaxing and painting in Philadelphia and then kind of got a, let's say a partial scholarship to the University of Arts of Philadelphia. And I wanted to continue the life I had of like living in a townhouse and having a studio. So I decided I was gonna take a summer job um, so that I could pay for that. My uncle, who's an executive chef at the time at a casino in uh, Connecticut, offered me a pastry position, figuring that was a good segue from art to pastry. No experience whatsoever in the, in the food world prior to that. Not a lot of memories of going out to eat or anything like that with my family. We kind of ate at home a lot. So the restaurant world was very new and exciting to me. And I spent two years in pastry arts and then started to see the culinary line from the pastry st station, watching the savory cooks cook. And um, I was hooked. I wanted to do that for a living after that. So I, I applied to a culinary school and um, studied that for a year and learned under some chefs and then kept moving forward. So where'd you go after culinary school? So culinary school was, was cool, but my first real savory cooking job was at this restaurant on the bay in, in New Jersey and a seafood restaurant and a bunch of chefs from Philadelphia had come down. They'd worked for like Lebec Finn and uh, Jean-Marie Lacroix and the Rittenhouse Hotel. And they were just like these super talented guys that just took this really interesting job to turn crab cakes and like fried fish all summer. And um, they just started hyping up like the food world to me. I mean, there's one of the chefs there gave me my first copy of the French Laundry. And I saw like this whole new world of culinary I didn't even know existed. So a little bit after that, after summer season with them and going into the winter months, which is a lot slower, I decided it was time for me to go to something else. And uh, that time my uncle told me to come back to the casino and I worked at a few restaurants there for a little bit, probably a year or two, just kind of learning the ropes of savory. And I just kept having this urge to, I need to do more. I need to like a different level of cooking. And the New York Times came out with this article about Gordon Ramsay opening up in the London hotel. And there's just like this picture and there was like 30 cooks in the kitchen all with their white hats and their aprons. And it looks so awesome and exciting. So I wrote to them and asked if I could come and do an interview or do a stage and uh, was able to go do that and opened up my life. So I went back to Connecticut with $300 and a duffel bag, such a cliche, but that's what I did. And I hopped on a Greyhound bus from New London, Connecticut to New York and slept on a friend's couch for the first like five, six months to uh, get myself situated and worked in my first fine dining restaurant, which really set my career off into a very interesting uh, trajectory for sure. What's a, a stage? Is that what you said? Yeah. Stagier, stagier or a stage is uh, basically you go in like a trial, like a test to see if you are 
<laughs> it sounds shitty, but look, worthy enough to be a uh, a cook in their kitchen, right? So, and sometimes they're longer. Like you could go to a restaurant for four months and donate your time in Europe to kind of learn and uh, see if uh, that's what you want to do. So you go in basically for a day to two days and you work for free. I mean, it's usually come in that prep time and leave when everybody cleans up, you know, it's like a 16 hour day and figure out if the kitchen's the right place for you or if the chef thinks you're the right fit for the team and see how it all melds as like a lot of these higher end kitchens, they're such a well-oiled machine. They have to make sure everybody fits in the right place. So did you have any mentors along the way or any really hard jobs that kind of shaped who you are as a chef now? Yeah. I mean, I think that opening job, like going into Gordon Ramsay after like cooking for what I thought I knew how to cook for four or five years and going into that kitchen with such professionalism was one of the hardest things I've done because everything I thought I was doing right needed to be better like every day. And I just felt like I couldn't lose that position. You know, it was maybe my first week there. They have like squeeze bottles for, you know, piping little sauces onto the plate. And it was my job to, it's like my first week on the station on veg station. They're like, you need to go wash these. And from the restaurants I was at, you just, you know, throw it at the <laughs> dishwasher and move on. And I did that. And the next morning when we came in, they're like, where are the squeeze bottles for lunch service? And I'm like, I put them in the dish and they didn't exist. Uh, they were gone. They were probably thrown in the trash or something at that point. And I was freaking out and I had no idea what to do. And I was afraid I was going to get fired. So we're getting ready for lunch service. It's probably an hour and a half before lunch starts. And I am freaking out. So I just decide I'm going to leave. I'm going to just run all the way to this restaurant supply store and I'm going to go buy squeeze bottles for the restaurant because I don't know what to do. So I run there. I haven't even gotten a paycheck from the job yet. It's like my first week there. I'm like so broke. I go in, I buy that. I realize I'm running out of time. I have to take a cab all the way back to the restaurant. I'm sweaty. I get there like right before service. They could fill the bottles. No one even acknowledges or knows that's what I have to do. I'm not going to tell them that. And, um, so finally we get the bottle spilled, service goes, everything goes smooth. No one knows I did that. And I kind of realized then like, okay, I'm in this, like I'm dedicated. This is important because I want to be like these, these chefs that are doing phenomenal food. I want to, I want to be like someone who pushes and at no, no cost will, will do what needs to be done. And that was very much my perspective as a young cook for sure. What kind of food were you making there? So Gordon Ramsay's was high-end French cuisine. It's based off of like classic French. It was probably pretty reserved, um, especially maybe for New York at the time, but well-executed, good technique, very classic, which I think was a good foundation just to kind of build that discipline. Definitely. I mean, so you went to culinary school, you took some jobs in the area, worked at the casino, Went and worked for Gordon Ramsay. What'd you do after that? It's kind of a tough act to follow. Yeah. So at that point, my now wife, girlfriend at the time, was thinking of moving out west. Her parents were in Los Angeles and they were thinking to move out closer to them. And uh, Charlie Trotter was going to be opening up in Las Vegas. And to us, it was like, this is what cooking is about. We can travel. I can travel. I can go see different parts of the country. So we just went on a road trip cross country and 
plan to hopefully work uh, at this restaurant with Charlie Trotter. So arrived in Las Vegas, opened this restaurant for this amazing chef for American cuisine at the time, realized, you know, a couple of months in, this wasn't going to be the Charlie Trotters of Chicago. And I wanted to keep pursuing it. Like you said, a tough act to follow, right? Like it just didn't feel like I was pushing myself as hard, uh, given the type of restaurant. So then I was introduced to Chef Eric Bostov, who was the chef de cuisine of Guy Savoie in the Caesar's Palace. And I basically went over to that position, which I stayed at for a little over two years under that direction. It was probably, he is definitely a mentor to me in terms of work ethic and discipline. I've never seen someone who's able to work like that and drive his team as much. Like he really, like if you were learning something, he would work side by side with you until you figured it out. And at that point, the restaurant had received two Michelin stars and the one in Paris has three stars and they were like pushing for that. It was right around the time of the recession hitting. So they had cut the idea of having like three colonies or assistants per station down to just like you working a station. So the responsibility really increased a crazy amount where all of a sudden you were doing the job of three people still trying to do this level of cooking and this demand. And, you know, Chef Gisawa was flying back at that time to be with us like every couple of weeks. So I actually got to work with him. A lot of time, those celebrity chef restaurants, they open up and the chef doesn't really visit or touch base. And his team would come from Paris and it just created such a unique experience that I don't think I would have gotten if the recession didn't happen. So I was very thankful for that, for sure. So you've worked in a lot of hotels. Is Oyster Oyster in a hotel or is that going to be a standalone spot? <laughs> no, it's standalone spot. I just think at the time that's where those type of restaurants yeah. were. And that's kind of where that budget, you know, as it was fading out, um, that's where those restaurants were. And that's where those type of things were. Oyster Oyster is very independent on a, you know, small private street in D.C. It is part of like a residential building, but by no means is it a hotel uh, it's very small, intimate space. Sounds like the place I want to be. <laughs> yeah, it's Sounds right great. up my alley. <laughs> so you were <laughs> out west for a while. And then when did you decide to make the move to D.C.? So D.C. was after I bounced around a lot. I did to Chicago. I wanted to work in a lot of cities. So Chicago, went back to New York, just had something happen, moved to Philadelphia. And then right around that time, I... My wife had gotten pregnant with our first child and we were like, is this where we want to raise our family? Where do we want to do this? Where are the next opportunities? And I had a very good friend, uh, Chef Sal Farrow, who works at the uh, Old Abbott Grill, which is like a DC institution, uh, invited us down. We saw where he is and his family and I was like, all right, I like DC. This is a cool city. It, it feels right. And it paid off. I mean, now I've been here for seven years <laughs> after moving down here. It's a place I call home. I just feel really connected to the Mid-Atlantic. The, the ingredients, kind of the way it looks, it reminds me a little bit like being near the Bay reminds me of where I grew up in New Jersey as a kid. And it's just been a city that's treated me very well. And I want to continue treating it well, too. So... When you're in D.C., you worked at Hazel. You helped open that restaurant up with the restaurant group you were working with. 
And then shortly after, you left to focus your efforts on the sustainability of restaurants. So what exactly does that mean? So, like, I've worked kind of all over. I've done a lot. And I kind of hit this, like, existential point of my career where I was, we're a successful, successful restaurant where we're doing really well. We're pushing out a lot of food. And I was just looking at the ingredients we were, we were using and we were, try, we were doing our best to work with farmers and these producers. And one day we had this very popular dish. Uh, it was like these sticky, crunchy ribs we were doing. And um, I was like calculating how many, how many pegs does it take? How are we getting this from all that? And I was just like, this doesn't seem right. And like, I just always had this, like deep down drive to be vegetarian and I was just seeing the impacts of everything on our our like food systems and I just didn't feel it was right I didn't even know if I wanted to do a restaurant anymore and uh then I had the idea well why don't we just focus on a restaurant that's more plant-based and breaks down sustainability and not just in terms of like a greenwash term like we use zero waste with our ingredients we're sustainable it's more about just responsibility and that doesn't just mean with the food. It's like how we treat our staff, how our staff's paid. What is the culture of the restaurant? The, like, what is the output of the carbon footprint of the restaurant? What is our output of our plastic use, water use? Like everything in a restaurant, because restaurants are pretty inefficient when it comes to all that. And the profit margins are already small. So it's just this very ambitious project of can we build something that works, something that's sustainable, something that's maybe a restaurant of the future in terms of not flying cars, just something that's going to be substantial and worth going to or operating 10 years from now, not just like what's going to be cool right now. And that was really the driving force behind that. So I made the decision to be vegetarian and focus just, I had to live that life. So from there, I got a 300 square foot little urban farm that I had to grow vegetables. I figured if I grew vegetables, I would know vegetables and have more of a relationship to understand the whole growth cycle and how to use them better and use that time to develop better relationships with farmers and have deeper conversations with them of how they're breeding. What are their use of their soil? Are they following regenerative processes when they're doing their farming or not? It just became this whole other world of food that I didn't even know existed and really kind of got my hunger back to be in a restaurant and being part of hospitality. So when did you develop the concept for Oyster Oyster and who'd you develop it with? So a friend of mine, uh, Max Kohler, he's a restaurateur in DC, longtime vegetarian. And we were friends and I was kicking around the idea. I was like, I want to do a vegetable restaurant where you know, over a few glasses of wine, a couple times hanging out, we start talking more about the sustainability and what that restaurant could be and how we wanted to do it. And it came clear that both of us were on the same page, same wavelength, like this was a great partnership to have. And we needed to do this restaurant somehow, some way. And from there, we basically set out, made our business plan, seeked out our investors, did our pop-ups, all that to kind of really round out what this restaurant was going to be about. And that's been over two years in the making now, <laughs> and maybe a little longer till we can finally open our doors. But um, yeah, it's something I feel if it wasn't this project, I would probably 
maybe not be still involved, but I feel this is so important and something that's really going to make a difference that I need to continue doing it. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you're kind of setting the scene for the sustainability world within the restaurant industry. Can you tell me more about, you know, the sustainability practice that practices that you're going to be implementing at Oyster Oyster and kind of how the concept's going to work? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, one thing we wanted to do is we looked at like use of plastic. So we eliminated all single use plastic, like in part of our, our ethos. We're so no cling film, no sous vide, no takeout containers made from plastic. Like if we're going to say we're going to use an oil, we want to see if that oil comes in a glass bottle, something we can reuse, have another purpose for before it ends up in recycling and recycling is kind of especially now with tariffs and the way the world is is kind of a bit of a myth and most times ends up in an incinerator or a landfill before it even gets a chance to be recycled so we wanted to eliminate that that was like step one so no plastics uh then we started to look at what what would have the least impact and it was really localizing what we're doing and not so much for any kind of like pride it was just like, we have these fantastic farmers here. We have these products. Now, what sacrifices do we have to do? So it's like, you imagine being able to open a restaurant is this block of stone and we're trying to chip away to get to David, right? Like, what is the least amount of stone or product or systems that we need to have in place before we get to this? Like, are we going to offer bottled water from another part of the country or world like that's silly like why are we going to ship water we have great dc tap water and now that water you know we serve that out of a recycled wine bottle now that recycled wine bottle maybe the guest doesn't drink all that water right like which happens you maybe have two or three bottles or still half bottle so at the end of the night that all gets dumped into a pot that's brought to a boil and we use that water to clean the floors of the restaurant instead of just pouring that down the drain just looking at resources like that Another part of it is just kind of like the stewardship of the earth and thinking about it. That's kind of where the name comes from, Oyster Oyster. Uh, we talk about the oysters, the bivalve, right? This this lives in the the Chesapeake. This is very important to this area. This is one of the most consumed proteins at any point. It was way over harvested to the point of almost depletion. So we have the Chesapeake Bay revival, kind of similar to the Billion Oyster Project in um, New York. And we need to protect those waterways. So that's where that first oyster comes from. Also, oysters don't feel any pain. They're not sending it. They uh, recycle up to 50 gallons of water a day. So it just made sense. Like this is kind of a food that you could consume that's going to give back to the earth by you know, do donating the shells to rebuild the reefs that then recreate a whole ecosystem that's missing from there and letting wild oysters have their their time and do these bay oysters that are farmed and harvested and utilize those as a, a food source. And then the other oyster is the oyster mushroom, which is kind of like this yin yang thing where it represents the fruit of a good soil system, the mycelium, the great recyclers of nature or mushrooms. And that is the other oyster of the oyster oyster in our restaurant. So it's really about stewardship, permaculture, taking care of our land, taking care of the people who operate restaurants, make this magic happen every day for the individuals. I love the Billion Oyster Project. I've worked with them before. I've 
Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, how how important they are, and they're also just delicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Are you going to be changing around the oyster menu often when you reopen, or kind of have the same offerings throughout the year? No, I mean the the way the menu is designed is to be very micro seasonal. Like think about fifty two seasons rather than you know four seasons. So, you know, every growth stage of a, a plant can be very interesting. Like in the early spring, you can have these beautiful French breakfast radishes. But if the plant gets a little warmer and you kept the plant in the ground, it would sprout. And you'd get these really tasty, bright, crunchy radish pods that are like, you know, spicy spring peas, basically. And so that's only something you can capture in a moment. So you want to think about oysters like that, too. They go through different stages of when they're best eaten raw when they're best eaten cooked you know some you can cure them you can pickle them smoke them make them into a delicious sauce you know we did some research and you find a lot of these old recipes for thickening a sauce or adding creaminess to a sauce was actually adding like a pureed oyster to it which is really neat and you don't think about so just kind of finding the versatility of one ingredient and letting that be a creative North Star to figure out all these different flavor profiles and textures that you can do. And the menu is based like that. It's a set menu, but being majority plant-based and mushrooms and oysters, we were able to do it at a very good price point too. That's still accessible. And opposed to being like this fine dining meccas that I grew up cooking in, the idea is to make this cut out all the bullshit is what we say. Like, do we need a back waiter? Do we really need to have four changes of this particular silverware for this, you know, how many plates do we need to serve and kind of really make a lot of sacrifices to make an exceptional dining experience that doesn't feel like you're, you're going to church and I'm trying to tell you what you're doing wrong by eating other places. Yeah. So you must have to have really close relationships with your farmers and local fisheries to figure out what's in season and what's fresh, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like a very early relationship. And I, I, I love his patience he's had because this has been two and a half years. Is, uh, this gentleman, Eric, who's a friend, has root and marrow farms out in Loudoun. It's basically like a 40-minute drive from D.C. We crop plan together. We create like what, what we're going to grow for the restaurant. He updates me you know, daily what's available. will send me little videos of like, hey, this is the size of the arugula, do you want this or not? Or this plant went to flower, do you think you could do anything with it? And we've had such a close relationship and it's it's just amazing to have those relationships for one, because those are the people that truly inspire me at this point in my career. It's not looking up to another cookbook or a chef. It's these, the breeders of these different seeds and varietals that are thinking about the future. It's this next generation of farmers who are really pushing the way they take care of the land, the product they grow, and a lot of pride behind it. And they also eat what they grow. They're not monocrop, you know, just growing a bunch of corn or anything like that. And having those relationships and tying that back into the restaurant, because without them, you know, there really isn't a reason or a good way to have a restaurant. And you see the fragility, like how fragile it is after something like COVID or a pandemic where food systems were kind of just put to a halt and you saw that 
you know, grocery stores are running out of food left. Like we don't have this in stock. We don't have that in stock. But the problem is they're shipping across country from another country. And meanwhile, we have all these local farmers and they don't have contracts with them to sell to these grocery stores. And we could be feeding a whole community. So uh, these relationships are essential. I think moving forward in the future of food is having more localized systems to sustain the communities nearby. And that must make your job exciting every day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it gives you a chance to experiment, taste, just the quality of the ingredient. <laughs> it also throws curveballs when something maybe isn't available and how do you adjust? And I think that point of thinking that's very honest cooking, like, okay, we can't get bulb onions today, but we can get onion blossoms. Okay. Can we, can we still impart that flavor that we're looking for using a different part of the plant we never thought of? Uh, I believe that creativity really just allows you to grow as a cook and as a person and just be a little more connected to the earth. Well, I'm excited for you to open up the doors of the new restaurant. In the meantime, I know you've been working on a different project. You're the co-founder of Bakers Against Racism. Can you talk about what that, that is and what it does and how did you start it? Yeah, absolutely. So Bakers Against Racism is a call to action, a movement to end systemic racism and create racial justice and also enrich the lives of Black and people of color in this country. The other co-founders, Willa Polini and Paula Velez, both very talented pastry chefs in the country stationed here in D.C., they came up with the idea to do this decentralized bake sale, you know, as a, as a form of protest and to raise money in Washington, D.C. They thought, you know, we could do it in D.C. Uh, we could probably get maybe, you know, 80 chefs involved with this. We could, we could make a little impact. And they reached out to me and they're like, do you want to do some graphics for this and help bake and be a part of it? And it was very grassroots, very organic at the time. And I was like, absolutely. Like, I felt like after George Floyd, I, I've seen it too much. I felt like as chefs, we're, we don't really get a lot of time to speak out about big things. We're told, you know, stick, stick to your script. <laughs> I was just like, no, this is fucked up. Like, I got to do something. And this was, this was a great opportunity to do this because the world we live in with COVID right now, we're very attached to our devices. We're very much socializing through technology. So what we were able to do was create this platform for bakers or a home baker, professional baker, pastry chef to participate by selling baked goods like a bake sale from their home or their restaurant. Um, and it became very accessible because now anyone can do that. As a chef, you do these big galas for these big fundraisers and there's you know, top dollar to even get in the door. And they rent all this wild stuff and there's a DJ and sponsors for all these wines. At the bottom line, like after all that's paid for, what's really left and who gets to participate, you know? Um, it's really a restaurant that's well-known, gets invited and someone who has a lot of money that can buy a ticket. But this took it to a more accessible level where I, as an individual, am a participant by buying an $8 pastry 
that then gets donated to an organization in my local community that helps enrich someone's life. And that was what I think made it so impactful. So we started that on June 4th, thinking maybe 80, 100 people would participate. A few, do, few days later, we were, you know, from Instagram, we were up to like a couple thousand followers. We're like, hey, this is catching some steam. Maybe we'll be in Philly or something. And then all of a sudden, we're in five continents, over 200 cities, you know, 44 states in the United States. You know, these 2,000 participants from all around the world, maybe even more. You know, last time we checked the data, it was that. And now all these people are baking against racism. It was, it was just so touching to see that this many individuals felt this. They knew they needed to do something. And we, it basically decentralized this to the point where anyone could participate. You know, you have my hometown, someone was baking cookies and, and selling them to the neighborhood. And then you have, you know, very high-end pastry chefs in New York participating as well. I think that's touching and really connects us as humans on a different level. It's such a great organization. And I feel like the impact is so widespread. I mean, even in the little town that I grew up in, there was someone who was participating in Bakers Against Racism, and I believe she was selling ice cream and sold out right away within like two hours of being open and had to replenish her inventory for the next time, double it up. So it's just awesome what you guys are doing. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's it's the work of of many, and that's the beautiful part about it. It's not about me. It's not about my fellow co-founders. It's really about everyone as a collective. And I think that's what really makes the impact. <clears throat> and the fact that we weren't saying donate to one organization. We, we spread it across the board to say, do the research, look in your community, find organizations or groups that are actually helping towards this. And by that, you educate yourself to learn a little bit about your community. You connect with people in your community. And that kind of connection is what's going to help fight that racism. And it's going to, to just make things continue to move forward. And you get to see instant effect rather than going to, you know, if you wanted to donate to a larger organization, I did part of my uh, proceeds went to that too. But the time it gets to your community, when is that? You know, like I donated a part of mine to a, a group called DC Urban Greens here in uh, DC, which is an urban farm that feeds Ward 7, 8, and 9, which are essentially food deserts. So they grow food to make sure that fresh, healthy, organic food is given to communities that don't have access to this. And during COVID, they've just been like feeding so many people, and it was amazing. And I donated that. And then I followed up with them to say, hey, like, I want to continue this relationship with you. And they told me one of the head farmers had recently had his, his computer broke and we were able to get him a new computer so he could log off his, you know, farming stuff and continue doing the work he's been doing. And just like the way that I connected and was able to help an individual that then is going to help so many more individuals to pay it forward kind of butterfly effect of it is outstanding. Absolutely. So how much has Bakers Against Racism raised so far? So, so far the collective has raised and donated because no money goes towards us. That was like, nothing comes for us. The whole point of it was to go directly to, from you 
to your organization. Yep. So we created a tracker. The day, the 20th was our pickup. We asked everyone to tally. I think we hit 1.3 million. And as of today, we are just breaking $1.9 million in donations. That is so great. Yeah, it's it feels it's like, wow, you know, like we it's almost two million and people. The beauty of it is the rules were so loose that now individuals are like, I just saw this. I didn't know what was happening. I'm going to do it this weekend. And now they're doing it and donating and adding it to the tracker. So it's something that's going to continue. And we want to keep the momentum going forward. And, you know, bake sales are definitely a form of protest. And, you know, it's it's people being heard, you know, even from a school, like the teachers need pencils and we do a bake sale. It's there's a need in a community and people come together to make sure that happen. And this is a need to end racism and justify the lives of people in this country. Yeah. So it's ongoing. So if people still want to participate and sell baked goods or pastries, they still can. Yeah, we believe that that's kind of the purpose of the whole thing is for the continued education. Like we didn't want it to stop on the 20th. You know, we want individuals to keep learning about the community, donating the community until this is eradicated or, you know, and continue improving lives. So we don't want to put a date on it because it's not a it's not a trend. You know, it's not just a one day thing. So absolutely. Keep moving forward. Keep keep protesting. Keep keep working hard to improve lives. That's great. I was reading an article recently about Bakers Against Racism, and it mentioned that the organization is looking to pivot to kind of help create a broader support system for Black, Indigenous people of color in the bakery world. How are you planning to do that? Yeah, I mean, as as talking... I mean, we're a little over a week from ending that. We've been regrouping. And I think is about opening resources and information. The point of that is we want to open access information. I want to give that to people who are sometimes that is not always the case. You know, you're not given these opportunities. You don't know how to food costs, like for one thing, like creating those kind of tools and giving those to people. And also giving them a platform to show what they're doing. A lot of times you're just left, you know, forgotten, these forgotten names and voices in the industry that work very hard and long and create delicious things, but they're not necessarily put the the spotlights not on them. So we want to make sure we can open those opportunities, whether it's, you know, they want to, they want to stage somewhere like we're talking about. Maybe it's, we can help create a grant that's going to provide provide money so that they can go and do that, whether it's help paying their rent for that time or getting a cookbook they need or enrolling into a culinary school. We want to create those opportunities and help support individuals so that they can move forward. I'm excited to see where Bakers Against Racism goes. So how do you think the industry can be more inclusive as a whole, not just within pastry and within the baking community? Great question. And it's the kind of questions we need to have right now. You know, I think it's, it's first starts with representation, right? I think individuals need to see chefs that look like them and see that they are, are doing things that they're passionate about. Right. And then I think that now as individual, like me as a white chef, it's not ever been my way to like, 
disregard someone because the way they look or anything. I've always been open to opportunities, but there's a lot of people who, and a lot of those kitchens I came up in, those fine dining kitchens, everyone kind of looked the same. Everyone did the same thing, you know? Uh, There wasn't a lot of diversity in those kitchens. And I think opening the doors to that and reducing microaggressions and, you know, not creating stereotypes around people, I think is important. And just having zero tolerance for the kind of bullshit that people say and do in restaurants. Like you just cannot be that type of person. Like it's no good. And it's really comes to that. And it's who it's also with the, it's also with food media, you know, it's who they showcase, what stories they tell and who they highlight and why they're doing it too. I, I think is very important. And the, the culture of the diner, you know, and who they're expecting to see in a white chef's coat behind the counter. You know, I think there's a lot of racism still there where it's there's an expectation of what the chef should look like. And I think we need to move past that. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And it is our responsibility as diners, as people who work in this industry, as chefs, as restaurant owners, as food media to hold restaurant owners accountable, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the times of just feeling gratitude for working for someone and not speaking out when you see something wrong are over, you know, call call people out on this kind of behavior and and make it known. We live in a world where that that stuff goes, you know, for lack of a better word, goes viral and the community will speak up and it's it's time it's time for change. And if you don't, like, you're going to get, you're just going to get burned, you know, like people are not going to let you do this anymore. We are ready for change. So how is the rest of your week looking? What do you have on the agenda? Um, I think it's fine tuning things to get ready for some kind of form of opening out of Oyster Oyster, whatever that looks like, whether it's a takeaway model kind of spin off of Scrappy's, um, getting those final things in place to do that, which is exciting. Like we won't be opening the restaurant we attended, intended to do, but we will be opening something that's going to service our community. We're going to provide food. We're going to be able to support the farmers that we've made promises to. That's really what this week's looking like. So where can people get in touch with you or follow along to see What's going on with Oyster Oyster? Instagram's our best resource. Oyster Oyster DC is our Instagram handle. My Instagram handle is just Rob Ruba. And you can find out everything that we're doing from there and at Bakers Against Racism for more about our movement there for Black Lives Matter. I love it. And I always end the podcast by asking the guests what their favorite song is. So what's your favorite yeah. song right now? <laughs> you know, I am, I love music so much and that's like such a hard question, but I had to really think about it. And uh, I guess like right now I've been vibing on the Mickey Dory song by Amendora, but um, I think it's a, it's an interesting song lyrically and just for the musical composition. It's very good too. Wonderful. I'll be posting it on the podcast Instagram. Awesome. So thank you for taking the time. It's been informative and wonderful. You've been such a lovely guest. 
Thank you for having me. It's been it's been great to have you as a host.